don't know about you, but talk about being unaware in like my little silo of information. I actually never grew up thinking about being in a union or about being married to a union man or any other thing about how unions might actually contribute to the quality of my life. Have you? Never, actually, besides <laughs> hearing about new Yeah, I remember learning about unions in school and occasionally I'll read about unions in the news. But other than that, no, not at all. Okay. Because as it turns out, I did marry a union man. And especially over the last few years, have learned a heck of a lot more about the inner workings of all things unions. And so it really got me thinking, wait a second, like they're huge in certain workspaces. How have they impacted all of our lives? And it turns out quite a lot. Yeah. So when I think about you saying that, I think about, for example, right, pop quiz, how many hours is a typical workday? Eight hours. Okay. So you said eight hours. Well, thank you unions, because that didn't just magically happen because employers were like, yeah, it seems like eight hours is a perfect amount of time for workers to work during the day. Because actually up until unions, they were forcing ridiculously long hours on their employees. Like we're talking the average work week for full-time manufacturing employees in 1890 was a hundred hours, right? If you're doing the math, that's it lot more than the 40 hour work week, right? And as I'm saying this, I'm having flashbacks of history class and things related to the industrial revolution, which I clearly heard and then completely forgot. <laughs> it's true though, because, you know, they, unions really helped shape things. And back in the 1950s, right? So about 70 years ago, nearly one in three workers were actually in unions. And certain industries had workers who were almost 100% in unions, which made them so much more powerful in negotiating for certain standards of living. So because unions ended up playing a critical role in boosting wages for American workers and reducing income inequality in the early to mid 20th century. So in short, unions actually done right are a public good. They provide benefits for all of society. And basically, they're this underpinning of a democracy that actually works, an economy that actually works for people. Right. But here we are today in 2023. And, you know, we're recording this on Equal Pay Day, which has a whole host of issues. But one of the issues that it has shown a light on is the fight for 15, right, which is to get $15 per hour to be the minimum wage for people working in the fast food industry. And we keep seeing headlines of workers starting unions or trying to start unions at Starbucks, at Amazon, at Apple. Maybe you know some folks who are involved or would stand to benefit from being in unions. I'd like that you mention it because this is not some like out there topic. This is something that is starting to gain momentum, certainly the attention of the news media lately. And in fact, in a recent poll, support for labor unions in the U.S., they found that support for labor unions in the U.S. is actually at a 57-year high. 71% of Americans approve of labor unions. But listen to these startling stats. Participation is actually at a record low, where just over 10%, 10.1% to be exact, uh, basically 14 million American workers are actually part of a union. So join us as we dive into our understanding of this little critical piece of the puzzle when it comes to shaping not just corporate, but also our country's policies and the perpetuation of the growing inequality we see in this country. And yes, it's not surprising, especially that we're talking about it, but there's a racial component to this too. Welcome to the Dear What Women podcast, the show that helps model and normalize conversations about race and racism as we help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. 
Okay, so we just, in our intro, we were talking a lot about unions and using that phrase like everyone understands. But if you ask me to define a union, I don't know if I could off the top of my head. So Sarah, what is a union? So a labor union is a group of two or more employees who join together to advance common interests like wages, benefits, schedules, and other sort of employment terms and conditions. If you think about it, if you join together or like in union term, act collectively, right, collective bargaining agreements, workers represented by unions really have a powerful voice, one that strengthens their ability to negotiate with their employers about their concerns, right? People want higher wages, health insurance, vacation days, paid sick leave, retirement benefits. I mean, those are just a few of the examples of what workers achieve through their unions. And you can see where compared to you doing it as an individual saying, hey, could I have better health insurance? Could I have a few more extra days off? Doing it with all of your workers to negotiate with, you know, against your employers really helps give you power. So there are a couple of overarching unions that I want to make sure everyone knows about. The majority of national unions are part of this American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. And you'll usually see that sort of shorthand AFL-CIO. And that's basically a federation of national and international unions that are headquartered in the U.S. So the AFL-CIO also includes hundreds of state and local federations, which are comprised of unions at state and local levels. But it's not always easy to form a union because employee organizers typically collect union interest cards or petitions like these other sort of written statements from coworkers to show interest in union representation. Right. Because can you imagine, let's say you're, you know, in a warehouse full of 2000 other people, let, imagine actually going up to individual, all these individual folks at your workplace and talking with them about joining a union and getting them to agree while you're on the clock trying to get your work done. It's a lot. Totally. And the undercurrent of like, not sure the employer is going to want you to be doing this. So you have to right. be careful too, right? Which is there's laws against that and we'll get into it soon. But Basically, you have to go one by one until you have a majority of employees, 50% of the employees plus one in your company, and then they all have to sign these cards seeking union representation. And once they reach that number, then the union can actually ask the employer to recognize their union voluntarily. And if the employer agrees, the union becomes the worker's legal representative for purposes of collective bargaining. Right. And Sarah, like what you just mentioned, there are also lots of examples of companies opposing the formation of unions, in which case folks in the private sector sometimes have to go to the National Labor Relations Board or NLRB, which is typically what you see instead of the full title. And they conduct elections, investigate charges, they decide cases, and they enforce orders. And there are also some groups that cannot form a union, right? And that includes domestic workers, independent contractors, agricultural workers who are not covered by federal labor laws that allow organizing and bargaining rights. If you look at the cases right now in California, right, around Uber and Lyft and how they just ruled that they're, they cannot be considered employees but independent contractors, that directly affects their right to unionize. And in some states, public employees also do not have collective bargaining rights. Right. So it's a great thing, but there's definitely some restrictions around it right now. And so, Misasha, my history buff lawyer friend, do you want to talk about how unions started in the U.S.? Yeah. And this is a great refresh of history that I questionably may have learned in school, but probably was not paying deep attention to because all I can think about in with the Industrial Revolution is railroads. But there was actually a, a lot of other stuff that happened, too. So it all goes back about 
140 years. So the National Labor Union was founded on August 20th, 1866 in Baltimore, Maryland. And if you're listening to that date, it's notably roughly one year after the Civil War ended, right? And this was the first attempt to create a national labor group in the United States. One of their first actions was the first national call for Congress to do something thought of as absolutely radical at the time, mandate that eight-hour workday that year. And if you think everyone was like, yeah, that sounds awesome, let's do that, that's not the reaction, right? If you've heard of the Haymarket riot, you know that's what happened after the Illinois legislature passed a law mandating eight-hour workdays a year later in 1867. After that happened, many employers refused to cooperate, which led to a massive worker strike in Chicago where there was a bomb that killed at least 12 people. And the aftermath is what's now known as that Haymarket riot, and it's commemorated on May 1st every year or May Day, which is also Cesar Chavez Day in California, not surprisingly, given what he did as well in this area. In May 1869, President Ulysses S. Grant issued a proclamation that guaranteed a stable wage and an eight-hour workday. However, that was only for government workers. Grant's decision, however, also encouraged private sector workers to push for those same rights. So other unions took up the mantle after the National Labor Union disbanded, and bit by bit, more companies and folks started listening. In 1912, Theodore Roosevelt's campaign picked up on the eight-hour work week with the slogan, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what you will. I mean, if you think about this time period, though, like the passage of time, this is a really long time in which we're still talking about the concept of the eight hour, like eight hours for work, right, per day. In 1916, rather, the railways, which we'll talk more about soon, were granted an eight hour workday by Woodrow Wilson in order to stop a potential strike in the Adamson Act which is awesome. Not enough to offset his blatant racism and fascist tendencies, but at least he did this for the railroads. And over a decade later in 1926, Henry Ford discovered through his research that working more yielded only, I'm laughing because it seems so obvious, yielded only a small increase in productivity that lasted a short period of time. And that gave even more popularity to shorter workdays. In 1935, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act, shortened to NLRA, making clear that it is the policy of the United States to encourage collective bargaining by protecting, rather, workers' full freedom of association. The NLRA protects workplace democracy by providing employees at private sector workplaces the fundamental right to seek better working conditions and designation of representation without fear of retaliation, which I think is the most important part. So finally, if you're following this whole trajectory, we started in 1866, we're now in 1938, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which required employers to pay overtime to all employees who worked more than 44 hours a week. They amended the act two years later to reduce the work week to 40 hours. So to summarize, and I know that was a lot of history, it took a union creating pressure for change from 1866 to 1938, 72 years to be exact, to finally get the federal government to standardize a work week regulating our workdays. So that is one major policy win for unions. But let's talk through what it might be like to be at a specific company. And can you think of one, Sarah? Uh-huh. Pullman, mm. right? You mentioned trains. Let's go back to your trains and the Industrial Revolution. So just a few years after the Civil War, the Chicago businessman George M. Pullman began hiring thousands of African-American men, including many former slaves, to serve white passengers traveling across the country on his company's luxury railroad sleeping car, doing things like 
lug baggage, shine shoes, set up and clean the sleeping berths and serve passengers. So keep in mind, all of his specially trained conductors were white, but historian Larry Tai, author of Rising from the Rails, Pullman Porters and the Making of the Black Middle Class, said that Pullman was, quote, looking for the people who had been trained to be the perfect servant. Kind of feels gross, but I'm going to keep talking, right? He basically reasoned that former slaves would know how best to cater to his customers every whim and they would work long hours for cheap wages. And he also thought that black porters, especially those with darker skin, would be more invisible to his white upper and middle class passengers, making it easier for them to feel comfortable during their journey. White comfort, right? Wow. It really makes me sick thinking about it. But with all of this, Pullman ultimately became the largest single employer of black men in the country and ultimately had a huge impact, right? Consider the probable influence these traveling porters had, right? In their travels, they'd bring with them their musical forms, jazz and the blues, for example. And they'd bring these ideas from urban centers to rural areas. They'd be moving from the north to the south, sort of. They had this mobility that not many people had. And then you do wonder after that, how did their experience maybe help fuel the great migration where 6 million Black people relocated from the south to other parts of the country? You think about how the porters saw how different their lives were from wealthy white people, and a lot saved money to send to their kids and grandchildren to get them to go to college and set them up for opportunities they themselves never had, right? If you remember our conversation with Majora Carter on this podcast, right? In the late 1940s, her dad, who was a Pullman porter, son of a slave, bought a house in the Hunts Point section of the South Bronx. And a few years later, he married her mom, right? This Pullman porter's continued from that time to being a thing until the end of 1968. You know, that's when sort of cars and plane transport became real competition to train travel, and it led to a decline of passenger train service. But the point of this is that we're not talking about ancient history. We're talking about things that are impacting people to this day. 1968 is recent, though, like real recent. Yeah, it's like, what, 67 was where Loving versus Virginia, where people could actually have interracial marriages for the first time. Well, you had the Civil Rights Act like five years prior. I mean, I think it's just people are shocked that this happened, like this happened during our parents' lifetime. Like, yeah, this basically ended 10 years before we were born. I mean, very recent. Right. So you think about this company. And going back to the union side of things, by the mid-1890s, the American Railway Union had already organized most of Pullman employees, but it refused to include black workers, including the porters. So finally, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, BSCP, they were formed in 1925, organized by A. Philip Randolph. And you'll hear his name again, but he was a social activist and publisher of the political and literary magazine, The Messenger. They faced super strong opposition by the Pullman Company, and Randolph and the BSCP had to fight for more than a decade before securing their first collective bargaining agreement, which was, in 1937, the first ever agreement between a union of black workers and a major U.S. company. So in addition to a big wage hike for porters, the agreement set a limit of 240 working hours a month, which is compared to the 400 hours per month at times prior to the agreement, which again, to break it down, is 60 hours per week down from 100 hours per week. Huge impact on the life of those porters. Yeah, well, and as you're talking about Pullman and you're still talking about the agreements, right, it's still very obvious that the Pullman porters were black, right? And sort of everyone else is white. So how did race play into the rising and ultimately the downfall of union participation? I mean, I think if you take a step back and look at a bigger picture, it might not be too 
bold to say that labor rights are human rights and to constrain a person's liberty, right, to choose their work, to earn enough to support a family, to marry, to travel. Any of that liberty is a deliberate act of coercion. And it sounds strong, but also think about this. What form of labor was this country first founded on? Slave labor, right? Think about the coercion that restricted Black human beings in the U.S. and the lack of choice they had and what they did for work, how little they earned, who and how they were not allowed to marry or were only allowed to marry, but they were still considered property. Clearly, they were not able to travel, right? All of these forces were so much easier to rationalize if the laborer is viewed as less than human. And so take that structure and think about after the Civil War, the emancipation of the enslaved, this other form of labor picked up because of industrialization, right? You had a few famous wealthy families, like you would have heard of all of them, the Carnegie family, the Vanderbilts, the Morgan and Rockefeller families. They monopolized whole industries, the whole steel industry, the railroad industry, the finance industry, oil, and capitalism was not nearly as regulated. They were ruthless in getting the value and getting money out of those industries. You already heard about the hours laborers were expected to work for them. You can imagine the hazardous conditions where they had to work, right? The exploitation was rampant. And in that time frame, immigration from places like Ireland and Italy and Eastern Europe picked up, as did you know those who helped build the transcontinental railroad the chinese folks who had been building the railroad got moved into certain sort of enclaves within the big cities the chinatowns that we see the legacies of today so all of these immigrants a lot of these folks are working in these huge factories standing shoulder to shoulder with other workers where like you said before imagine being in a factory walking around asking your your fellow workers do you want to join this union ideas are really easy to spread if you're in one big shared space and so all of that meant that there was fertile ground for the idea of unionizing and there and banding together against these oppressive conditions to grow so there was a lot of support for unions at that time well and i appreciate that and i also think about at that time period right if we're moving forward a little bit in time by the early 1910s, the flow of white immigrants, you know, the Irish, the Italians that you were talking about had slowed from down from Europe because of hostilities and, oh, I don't know, like a gigantic world war, right? World War One. Unions started gaining more negotiating power, which the employers weren't so happy about. So they started recruiting black workers from the South. So remember how we just talked about the Pullman porters and Sarah, you were talking about this being one of the polls for the Great Migration. Well, this was another because the employers wanted to hire black workers to break some of these union led strikes, hiring them as replacement workers. And I mean, if you play this out, right, companies started forming a wedge between the workers using race. So from the AFL-CIO, the worst recorded incident of labor-related racial violence occurred in St. Louis in 1917, when the aluminum ore company brought in African-American workers to break a strike 3,000 white union members marched in protest. The marchers morphed into a mob attacking random black residents on the street. The following day, shots were exchanged between white people and black people in the black part of town. Two plainclothes police officers were killed. And when that news got out, roving white mobs rampaged through black East St. Louis, burning homes and businesses and assaulting men women, and children. Wow, this story sounds familiar. Between 100 and 200 Black working people died and 6,000 were left homeless. It foreshadowed things to come. So the relationship between companies and unions continued to get more and more antagonistic. 
with companies leaning harder into the harassment of strikers and bringing in more. And by more, I mean, 30 to 40,000 more Black and Mexican folks as strike breakers. And so that would also be taunting the locked out strikers for losing their good, quote, white jobs. And I'm sure that race component couldn't have been heightened anymore by doing that, right? So that is a lot of tension in labor now, where instead of seeing labor union protection as good for everyone, that wedge created by race continued to be set as companies work to divide their labor force. All right, so moving forward a little bit, several years after the Great Depression in 1929, where one out of every four workers suddenly became jobless, policies from the New Deal came into play. And many of these set the legal foundation for our current labor laws, employment standards, and social insurance programs, which are also under attack, I should asterisk that, huge asterisk. But they were also deeply biased, excluding Black workers, tipped workers, and letting Southern states exclude Black folks from participating in social security programs. Huge eye roll. So when the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, also known as the Wagner Act, guaranteed all workers the right to join a union and bargain collectively and create an oversight board to approve union elections and define fair labor practices and had fair referees. Not surprisingly, union density tripled in a decade to 35.4% of all wage and hour workers because this was finally a program more people could get behind. Additionally, and Sarah, you hinted at this, remember A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters? He played another huge role at this point because he felt like the U.S. was seemingly heading into war again, this time World War II, that African-American workers would benefit from the expansion of the defense industry as a result. So in 1941, after he threatened to march 50,000 Black men to Washington to protest their exclusion from production jobs, Roosevelt banned discrimination in defense factories and even established a Fair Employment Commission to enforce his executive order. I mean, which is a great move by Roosevelt. I'm sure that he would not have done that had that threat not happened, right? So sure, there were some hiccups, like in June 1943, where managers at the Packard Company in Detroit actually promoted a few Black workers. I know that's shocking, right? And 25,000 white workers went on strike. Wow, that is shocking racism. Not so shocking, but still shocking. Similar racial conflicts, though, erupted in mass transit unions in Philadelphia, in steel plants in Baltimore, in the shipyards of Alabama, when Black workers gained access to production jobs. So it was not, it was sort of across industries, right? That racism is pervasive on all levels. But labor leaders, especially Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO, leaders worked hard to suppress hate strikes and were fairly successful in doing so. So shortly after this, W.E.B. Du Bois, documenting the ability of union solidarity to overcome racial animus, noted that union men in steel and automotive industries have been thrown together, black and white, as fellow workers striving for the same objects. There has been on this account an astonishing spread of interracial tolerance and understanding. Probably no movement in the last 30 years has been so successful in softening race prejudice. All right, so that all sounds great but it didn't last for long. The Labor Management Act of 1947, also known as the Taft-Hartley Act, outlawed tactics used to win union recognition. Things like wildcat strikes, mass picketing, and secondary boycotts. That act gave managers the right to force employees to attend anti-union meetings and approved laws in 11 states that allowed employees to opt out of paying union dues. 
not surprisingly, that didn't help grow union organizing or membership, right? And as the civil rights battles heated up, this became too much to overcome. Because sure, Kennedy established collective bargaining rights for federal employees in 1962, which really pushed state and municipal public sector union organizing just as more public sector jobs were being open to Black people and helped the huge growth of the Black middle class. In fact, both Black and white poverty rates were cut by half in the Kennedy-Johnson years from 55% to 27% and from 20% to 10% respectively. But union density still continued to be on that downward trajectory. And even after civil rights legislation finally made racial discrimination illegal in the 1960s, conservative, I know this is going to sound shocking because this has not at all happened in recent memory, conservative politicians used racial stereotypes and white fear and anxieties to divide working people. One of our favorites, Nixon's campaign and his calls for law and order was an highly unsubtle promise to crack down on Black demands for full equality. Nixon spent his first two years increasing federal funds to police departments for anti-riot equipment and then cut funds for small businesses, education, and job training. Sounds awesome. By 1971, Nixon's NLRB had undone all of the progressive labor reforms that had been established under the NLRB of the Kennedy era. All. That's pretty impressive in a terrifying way. So that legacy of that Nixon period has continued with one notable exception. Only 39% of white people voted for Obama in 2008, but 59% of union households did. And more white union members voted for Obama in 2008 than those who voted for Gore or Kerry. So what did we then see? Labor was rewarded with policies like the Lilly Led Better Fair Pay Act, the Affordable Care Act, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, and financial reform. And notably, many of these policies benefit all of us to this day, making life better for the average American. So as we're talking about this, and we're talking about that changing landscape of unions, right, and the increasing restrictions around sort of that collective good, I want to ask you this, Sarah, what role could increasing union participation play in this country, especially right now, considering that we are sort of in that Nixon era throwback, right? Like we're bringing the 70s back. And where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, I think first, just off the cuff, I would say that it's so clear to me that in some of our recent conversations, this idea of lowering income inequality, leveling the playing field, building a bigger middle class is good for all of us. There are very few people who are at the top end of the income bracket who are really trying to continue to drive a wedge in our ability to provide a basic lifestyle for ourselves. And I think we need to understand that those are like undercurrents of if they're playing into race tension, if they're splitting the workers, if they're saying they want to exploit their workers and not pay them as much. I think we have to understand that labor, which is you know, in some ways, when you think about unions, because they're still such a small percentage of our population, you don't think that it matters. But the unions are representing laborers. They are rep- and most of us are working for somebody else. Right. And so if we have abilities to band together and demand the ending of exploitation and demanding basic things that we need to live a good life, I think it's important. So in that way, I would say supporting the creation of unions, supporting the understanding of those who don't get that unions are good for all of us. It's not just for, quote, those people or, or anybody else. By being part of a union, you can actually help you know, 
broaden your power and get things that you need along with your peers, I think is a really good thing. So along those lines, I would say consider industries that aren't unionized right now, right? One of the big areas that I would say needs to be looked at is the home care industry. Because if you're a mom, you know you don't get any compensation for the labor of raising a child or caring for the elderly in your family. And similar to that, like there's a disproportionate number of women by default who end up being the primary caregiver for their loved ones. And they are certainly also overrepresented in the care industry as employees. As it is right now, we're seeing too many waiting lists for elders and people with disabilities in states all across the country to get home care. Home care is the fastest growing industry in the country right now. It's still unregulated. Imagine an ununionized. Imagine what could happen if we raise the wages of what's currently basically poverty wage work that's been excluded from overtime. It's been excluded from unemployment insurance. It's been excluded from workers' comp. What if we make it a recognized career, a recognized job? So I think, again, considering industries, supporting industries that aren't currently allowed to organize into unions, into labor unions is really important. The other thing that I think the U.S. should consider are ideas that are popular outside of the United States. Right now, you think of labor unions and you think about like the union at your company is basically what it's seen as. But in other countries, they actually unionize across industries, right? Like the whole airline industry as a whole, for example, would be unionized. Companies are less likely to fight it because really it levels the playing field regarding the workers within the whole industry. So they don't like gain or lose competitive edge if all of the workers in the whole industry are unionized. So I think in that sense, look for policies that increase incentives for workers to join unions and anything that reduces the incentive of companies to oppose unions, right? The CEO of Starbucks, the headlines recently were just talking about how he's finally being pulled before the government to testify about their anti-union strategies. So it's not, again, something that is just out there. It's showing signs of life, this idea of unionizing. So if we're serious about looking out for all of us and that we're in it together, supporting unions could be one of the most basic forms of engagement we can find. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>